Genesis 27, it's a, a long one. It's a fatty. It's a wowzer on a lot of levels. If you weren't here on Sunday, um, I did a lot on Sunday in this, so it may feel like I'm skipping things, and I am skipping things because it's 46 verses long. So if you want to grab Sunday's message, uh, you can. That maybe will fill in some of the things that I hop over. Verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Just a little note here. Um, Deuteronomy 34 verse 7 says that when Abraham died, excuse me, Moses died, that his skin was perfect and his eyes had not dimmed. And so there, a buddy of mine uh, who tends to be more charismatic than I do uh, said that's the way everybody's supposed to be. We're all supposed to never wear glasses and our skin's supposed to be perfect. So he went to this meeting and he was prayed over and he's like, he just took off his glasses and decided I'm not wearing my glasses anymore. He did that until he almost got in an automobile accident and killed somebody. So we have to be very careful when we select one thing out of scripture without looking at all the data points that scripture presents us. Because here's Isaac, who is the second patriarch, who's going to really be, the, the, he's the chosen son, the son of promise. He's the one that the line of Messiah is gonna come through. And guess what? He's old and blind. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't think God does either. Because these bodies were meant to wear out so that we would so desire the new body that's coming, 1 Corinthians 12. So that's just a total side note. But anyways, free. <laughs> he called Esau his older son and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. I call these first four verses the battle of wills. You've got God's will on one side and you've got Isaac's will for Esau on the other side. And just for context, if you look at dates and times, um, Jacob and Esau at this time were at least 40 years old, probably 70 years old. Yeah, a whole different, when you think about that, you're like, man, these, it's a whole different context. Um, he's, uh, uh, Isaac is 140 years old. So just a different culture, right? So Isaac's 140. He's thinking to himself, man, I'm close to death. Do you know how much longer he'll live? 43 more years. I, I just cracked up when I read that. Because sometimes you talk to like old people and they're like, I'm just so ready to die. And I'm like, well, how do you know? And then years will go by and a decade will go by and they're still alive. And I'm like, sometimes I think we act older than we actually are. I don't know how good that is. I think I want to do the opposite through my life. I want to act younger than I am, Right. So he's 140, he's got 40 more years of life. And he's like, man, I'm almost going to die. 
dude, you're going to live for 43 more years. Come on, live big. And I think the other side of this is the richer your life is, the faster it goes. It's like the richness, it's the price you pay for living a rich life. So if you ever feel like, man, life is just, how in the world? I just sit and think, how am I 45? I still think I'm 18. Like in here, I still think I'm 18 until I play basketball with 18 year olds. And I try to get a rebound and a dude jumps over me, like literally over me. I'm like, how did that happen? I had hops at one time. I'm old, right? But I think we should always, man, just be like, I'm 18. I'm ready to go. I'm getting after it. Isaac though, 140, I guess you can't blame him. He has 140, but he's like, I'm ready to die. Time to do the blessing. Here's his mistake. The patriarchs, when they were thinking they're going to die and they're going to bless, they're supposed to call in all their kids, not just Esau. So if you watch Jacob, Jacob is real careful about this at the end of his life. Read chapters 48 and 49, where he calls in all 12 of his sons, one after another, and blesses each one of them. That's the way it's supposed to happen. Why is Isaac only calling in Esau? Because he wants to trick God. He knows the prophecy of Genesis 25, 23. The older is gonna serve the younger. And he doesn't want that to happen because Esau is his favorite son. He's the one. We talked about that on Sunday. He wants Esau to get the blessing. His blind favoritism has now made him think that God is blind to his plan here as well, right? And what we saw with Esau when he sold his birthright, he sold it for what? Food. Isaac here, what's he doing? He's trying to trick God with a meal. It's a, oh, fix that food. Food has so much power, doesn't it? Did you see yesterday the Olive Garden reintroduced their pasta pass? Who's heard of that? Yeah, you don't want to admit it. <laughs> it's a hundred days of unlimited pasta for a hundred bucks. So you can live at Olive Garden for a hundred days. You just, they, they don't ask you, right? Last time they did this, they sold 21,000 pasta passes in one second. The moment they went on, everybody, they were gone, right? This year, they bumped it up to 22,000 pasta passes. And with every pasta pass, they're now giving people an extra large pair of sweats. Just wear these, man. You're going to need them. <laughs> Food has power. <laughs> So it's like father like son right here. There's the power in food. So what we're going to see is this. Isaac's unwillingness to allow God's plan to go forward, his unwillingness to do that, his desire to thwart that and bring Esau in and do something different is going to suck in the rest of his family into disobedience, right? Rebecca's going to connive. Jacob's going to lie. Now they contribute, no doubt, but Isaac kicks the sin snowball that just takes out his whole family. That's what he does. And I wonder how many husbands and men do that to their families because of what they allow in, because of the way that they live, they suck in their sons and their wives into the vacuum of sin. Be so careful, men. Our job 
is to be Christ-like, leading our families into godliness, leading our families into what is righteous and true. Not being Isaac, kicking the sin snowball. We need to be the opposite, stopping, thwarting, pushing back against darkness and sin. But Isaac doesn't, and it just goes downhill. So we get battle of wills. Now we get mama bear. (laughs) You know moms. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. You would think they would figure this out by now. Tense, don't stop sound. (laughs) Talk quieter, go for a walk, do something. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before Yahweh before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for, from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go Bring them to me. Who's in control here? Mom, right, Rebecca? So 3,800 years ago, it would not be uncommon for a 40-year-old man to be obeying his mom. Today, it's uncommon for a 16-year-old boy to obey his mom. But back then, this is not uncommon, right? And she's going to make it happen. She, Mama Bear is going to, I heard God about my son, I'm going to make it happen. That's moms, isn't it? We got dads kicking sin snowballs, and we've got moms saying, I'm going to make this happen. Be careful, moms. Be careful. You can know something about your child. Just know this is what God has for them. And then you can just be so dogged that you will not allow anything to interfere with that. My daughter's supposed to be student body president. I'm going down there and hanging posters. My son should be captain of that football team. I'm going to stop, talk to that stupid coach, right? This is moms. We're, we're, we haven't changed much from the Isaacs and Rebecca's. We have to temper those things and be careful of them. The, the lesson is this. There is never communication in this family between mom and dad or the boys. Not once do you see the four of them together. It's Mom and, Esau, uh, mom and Jacob, dad and Esau, dad and pretend Esau, dad and real Esau. You know, it's just, it's never all of them together communicating, trying to work this thing out. There's this great study I have. It's, it's, it was titled Family Meetings Matter. And what they found was this, families, they have a once a week, that's it. A once a week kind of sit down like, hey, what's going on this week? Maybe it's Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, whatever it is. Hey, let's sit down. Let's talk about our week. What's happening? What are you doing? What's going on? Families that did that, every bad thing, drug use, sex, whatever it is, all those things, suicide, depression, all of them just plummeted from that one thing, communication. Let's talk. What's going on? Hey, Isaac, don't kick that. Hey, Rebecca, don't do that, right? Simple. 
but it doesn't happen. And instead, things go south. The lesson to me is really simple. You don't parent like Genesis, right? You don't parent like Genesis. Think about Rebecca. She's conniving and tricking, pushing her will. Her will. Jacob actually tries to stop his mom. He's like, oh, hold on a second, mom. I'm not hairy and smelly. And what does Rebecca do? I got goat skins and his old B.O. clothes. Get with it, son. Do and obey me. Great family, family values, right? Get out there and lie. But I don't want to. You get out there right now and you lie to your dad, right? <laughs> I'm not letting you stop. I mean, she's really pushy on this. It's like, oh my goodness. If Jacob is a deceiver, it's because he learned from the best, his mom. So be so careful. Isaac knowingly wants to thwart God's will. Esau knows he's sold the birthright, but he's going to go along with it. Rebecca's going to push against it all, and Jacob's just going to lie time after time after time again. This family would be a great like reality TV show. It's like Jerry Springer or something in here, and it's in the Bible. And these are the people that are in the line of Jesus Christ. It's really astounding when you think about it, right? So Mama Bear shows up. Here's how it goes down, verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother, this, I found this, I just underlined it in my Bible. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Is, is there tension there? I think there is. Esau, you go prepare for me delicious food like I love. And Rebecca's like, wait a second. I do that for you. Wait a second. I'm supposed to prepare that for you. I think there's a little tension in here. Like, personally, I do. Then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread that she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Harry, check. Smelly, check. Take the food and go, right? Almost like pushing him on the back. Who's controlling here? Rebecca, right? Rebecca is controlling this thing. She put the food in his hand and said, go do it. We as parents have to be careful of this. There's a term for Rebecca. You know what it is? Helicopter parent, right? Just hovering over, just making sure and get that kid to, to everything he's supposed to do. Helicopter parenting, right? They've got all of them now. I love like the terms they have. So there's helicopter parents. Another one is called the curling parent. Remember the Olympics where you'd throw that little weight down the slippery slope and the guy in front of it would sweep all the obstacles out of the way? That's a parenting style. Like never let your kid hit an obstacle. Just sweep out all the things in his past so it's just smooth gliding for his whole life. It's the curling parent. Love that one. There's the black, the, the, these are real terms, the Black Hawk parent. You know who that is? Someone that sits in a Black Hawk helicopter two miles away from the enemy and just boom, 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 boom. So it's like Facebook, Twitter, whatever. I'm gonna boom, boom, email you. I'm gonna get you from a ways away, just bombard you with my, my opinions of how bad you are to my child, right? So you got the Black Hawk parent. Then, then you have the free range parent. There's a great book on that. I read it. I'm like, man, that's me. I'm such a free-range parent. I'm like, figure it out, buddy. Go do it. A free-range parent is essentially that. This lady, um, she allowed her nine-year-old son to take the subway in New York City by himself. 
And so someone's like concerned and they're like, ah, turned it into the policeman. And, and it just got crazy. She's on the news and she said, hey, and she's like a PhD. She's a, like a university professor. She's like, oh, I'll give you statistics, all right? She's like, if you wanna do, you wanna protect your child, never let him get in a car. There's a one in 40,000 chance that he will get killed in a car. There's a one in 4 million chance he'll get kidnapped, okay? So what are we really worried about? And she just downloaded on this person on the news and they're like, oh, okay. Let your kid go on the subway then, no problem. <laughs> so that's a free range parent. And then the, the other one is the tiger parent. Amy Chua, have you heard of her? Google her, she's unbelievable. She makes her kids practice the piano four hours a day. I read her book, Tiger Mom, it's hilarious. She says, I laugh at parents that think they're doing a good job making their kids do piano for 30 minutes. She gives this story when one of her kids were 10, was 10 she's got two girls, one was 10 years old, made a handwritten card for her for her birthday, handed it to her mom, her mom looked at it, it was too sloppy, she threw it back at her child and said, make me a better one. Tiger Mom. So you got all these kind of methods right now. Rebecca's helicopter, what's the right one? I don't know. But I think here's what, as a parent, you need to be continually doing. It's like we're in the middle of a hurricane with kids. You're like, Wah! Every once in a while, you have to step out of that hurricane. And I think you got to ask these two kind of things. Number one is this, what is my goal? What am I actually trying to accomplish with this child? Because I'm sitting back black hawking, then at some point, I won't be able to do that anymore. Or if I'm sitting back curling, you know, trying to get all the obstacles, eventually that's not going to work anymore. So what am I actually trying to accomplish? And how am I going to get there? And here's what I think. We are trying to raise adults, not adolescents. We're trying to raise adults, mature, young people that can not just survive in this world, but thrive in it. We're trying to raise adults that love Jesus. And I got to always step back in my parenting because I can get in the storm and be like, that's it. Helicopter, I'm Black Hawk, I'm taking somebody out. I got to step back and be, all right, am I raising an adult who's going to be able to handle these things when they come their way? And how in this can I be showing my child how Jesus is shaping them and he's there for them, he's on their side? To me, that's it. That's the question that I step back all the time and ask. No matter what style of parent you are, I think that's your goal. An adult that loves Jesus. That's a win to me, right? So Rebecca... Helicoptering. She finally gets her job done, shoves him into the tent. He's there with the meal. I, <clears throat> here I am. So he went in and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob to, said to his father, I'm Jacob. <laughs> Remember the prophecy in Genesis 25, verse 23? Dad, we're, we're blowing it here. Does he say that? Mm-mm. Jacob has been underneath the pressure of his mom, but now he contributes to the same problem. He could have, right here, God always gives us a way out. He could have chosen it here. I'm not going to do that. This just isn't right. But he doesn't. What does he say? I'm Esau, your firstborn. Two lies right there. He's not Esau. He's not the firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game. Is it game? No, it's a goat. Line number three. That your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because Yahweh, your God, granted me success. Lie number four and blasphemy, just to throw that in there as well. 
Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am, line number five. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Five lies, one after another, after another, after another, after another. Sin always has babies, doesn't it? When you lie, think about how many times you have to lie to then defend your first lie. It always goes just like this. Lie after lie after lie after lie. And did you know this? Lying makes you stupid. Or I should say, lying makes you stupider. Some people may already be stupid. It just makes you stupider. Here's what they found. When you tell a lie, your brain has a certain kind of capacity. Let's say it's got five horsepower, some more than that. It's got five horsepower. When you tell a lie, your brain has to then divert some energy to trying to remember the lie and who you've lied to. So it's back here spending like a couple horsepower just going, who did I lie to and what, what was that story? If it's the truth, then it just becomes a memory that's just a file. Your brain doesn't have to do anything with it. It can just go retrieve that, say, well, this is the truth and put it away. But when it's a lie, your brain is continually spinning that little thing going, right? And science has found, like they did these great tests on people where they'd lie and then they would test them. When you lie, it makes you stupid. It's pretty awesome. It's like poetic justice. God's saying, don't lie. Why? Because it's really bad. It makes you stupid. Jacob here, one lie, two lie, three lie, four lie, five lie, lie after lie after lie. Right to his dad's face. Parents, ever had one of your kids stare you straight in the eye and lie to you? Oh, there's nothing worse than that. Here's a trick. When kids lie, they tend, most of them, majority of them, if they're right-handed, left-handed, it's opposite. If they're right-handed, they will look up to the left right before they lie. So I started asking my kids like this, did you take the cookie? <laughs> now my kids do this. No, dad, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can't see my eyes. <sighs> he just lies. Then his father, Isaac, said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son. It is the smell of the field that Yahweh has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven. That would be in this arid desert. That was what made the grass delicious for your animals, for your sheep and your ox and your donkeys and your camels. And the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. You can see in this the Abrahamic tie-in of Genesis chapter one through three. 
the blessing and the curse and all that stuff, all given now to Jacob. Unbelievable. So it seems like he wins, but does he? We'll talk about that. So as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. How good of a hunter is Esau? Oh my goodness. Jacob went, grabbed some goats, prepared them, right? Right off the bat, got them ready. Dad eats. When he's done with that, Esau's already gone out, shot something, brought it back, cooked it, got it prepared and comes in. Oh my goodness. Who's the last person you want hunting you? Who's going to be hunting Jacob in a couple of verses? Oh, he's the last dude, man. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all before you came and I have blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers and I've given to him for servants and with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword, you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Whoo. The blessing's been given. I can't give it to you. Two things to note. Number one, Isaac's enlightenment. So if you remember the story of Isaac, Isaac, is, we've never seen emotion out of Isaac. He's very stoic. He's marching up the hill with his dad in Genesis 22, where his dad is going to sacrifice him. And does he show any emotion during that entire scene? No. Dad, what's up, man? <laughs> Where's the sacrifice? Don't worry about it. Okay. Right? And he's 17 years old. It's amazing. He's a stoic, but here, verse 33, it says he trembled very violently, huge emotion. Why? No, I don't think so. I think this is what I believe. I think right here he realized, 
I'm fighting against God. In this segment, he runs smack into God. He's now reminded, oh yeah, the prophecy, Genesis 25, 23. Oh yeah, I've been trying to fight against that. I've been trying to cross God's will and I cannot. And that's why he says, yes, and he shall be blessed. God's doing this. I tried to thwart this every way I possibly could, Esau. I wanted you to be the one. God's doing this. And I just ran into God. He's, gonna, he's learning, if you would, like Pharaoh, because remember, this is written to a group of freed slaves who would wander around the wilderness for a while. He's learning like Pharaoh, you cannot cross God. You cannot fight God. You can't fight God. I have a saying on that. Your arms are too short to box God, but they're just long enough to dance with him. And that's what he wants. And what Isaac is learning right here is you can't box God. You can't box God. Ultimately, I'm in control of this. Ultimately, I chose him and you will not thwart my plan. And Isaac trembles violently. And then, and then Ishmael's like, excuse me, Isaiah, man, let's see what other name I can come up with. <laughs> Bill and Phil. <laughs> Esau is like, hey, come on. And then this is how Isaac responds. It's the end of verse 37. What then can I do for you, my son? He just taps out. And for dads, that's hard to do because dads, we're naturally fix-it people. We're going to fix it for our kids. Okay, yeah, all right, all right. So this kind of went bad, but you know what? We can fix this, right? That's a dad. Isaac just says, no, I just ran into God. I'm tapping out. There's nothing I can do here. We got to just trust God now. Sorry, Esau. I'm tapping out. It's quite incredible. So you got Isaac's enlightenment and you've got Esau's soul. He is broken and he's blaming. Like the, the Esau has been emotional and he's super emotional here. Verse 34, he, with exceeding great and bitter cry, bless me, oh my father, right? Verse 38, he lifted up his voice and he wept. You got all this emotion just pouring out of him. I don't know if he's 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. He could be anywhere in that range. And he still wants his dad's blessing. How important are dads? Do dads ever stop being important in the lives of their kids? No. You got Esau, hunter man, stallion, outdoor man, weeping bitterly. Why? Because he still wants his dad's blessing. Dad, bless me too. Tell me I matter too. Say something good to me too. Dad, you never stop mattering. And, and he, he says something with the birthright and the blessing. And there's a, a little bit of a play on words because in the Hebrew, there's only one letter that separates them. Bekorah is birthright and Berakah is blessing. Just the K's mood, if you would. Hey, and, and he says this about Jacob. He says, Jacob has tricked me twice. Is that true? True? No. He sold his birthright. Yeah, tricked him one time. But now, what's he doing? He's making Jacob worse than he actually is. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to play the blame game. So easy. But when you play the blame game, you all, the only thing you win in the blame game 
is hatred because verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. In the blame game, the only thing you ever win is hatred. That's it. And everyone wants to play it. I've talked to men who are addicted to pornography and they blame, uh, this kid showed me when we were 12 years old and that's the reason why. Okay, but you're making choices now as a 30-year-old man. Easy to blame the 12-year-old buddy, but what are you doing right now? How'd you steal from that company, man? They always underpaid me. Really? I had to lie. It's so easy to play the blame game. Man, I'm always losing my temper because I'm surrounded by idiots. Of course I lose my temper. It's so easy to play it. Now, circumstances always contribute, no doubt about it. The circumstances surrounding Esau, yeah, they contributed to it, but he was a willing partner in it. And James 1.15 says this, it's your lusts that entice you to sin. Yeah, there's circumstances. Yes, they contribute to it, but you always have a choice in it. Am I gonna join in with this thing or am I gonna stand against it. And the believer, Romans 6, says this about you and me. It says that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we have an ability now to live lives of righteousness. We don't have to do that. We don't have to blame. We don't have to succumb to sin. We can live free lives. But Esau here, it's easier. Oh, that Jacob, we'll see what hatred does to him. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with, what, with which his, his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He'd have 43 years to wait. <laughs> it's a long time to nurse a grudge. He's probably able to do that. But the words of Esau, her older son were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Woo. How true is that? Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send you and bring you from there. Why should I be reft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She's still scheming and still in control. So Esau, his hatred does something to him, doesn't it? It's verse 42. It fuels him now. The only comfort he had, losing out on the blessing of his father, the only comfort, the only thing that kept him going now was his hatred of his brother. You know, anger can fuel you for quite a while. I know people that have been fueled by anger for a long time, but the problem with anger being your fuel is it burns you out from the inside out. It's like drinking antifreeze. Tastes sweet, but it kills your kidneys. So here... He's being comforted by something that's going to kill him. Jacob gets the blessing, but guess what he loses out on? He's gonna be sent away. He'll never see his mom again. He leaves his home, you know, his family, his crew. He never gets the inheritance. 
Because he's gone, he's got to go make his own way. He does that. We'll, we'll see that story. Esau actually gets all the inheritance, gets everything of his dad's. Jacob gets nothing. Fascinating. Loses way more than he gets. And if you watch Jacob's life, it's, a, it's not a fun life. He gets deceived incredibly by Laban, works a whole bunch for that guy, gets married. The love of his life, Rachel, dies early in childbirth, right? One of his daughters gets raped. Another of his daughters, or his son, Joseph, gets sold into slavery by his own sons, right? And what do they bring back to prove to Jacob that it was his son, Joseph, that was sold into, that was killed? What do they bring back? A coat. What would that remind him of? Yeah, the coat he put on to pretend something else. Like there's just so much. So if you read Jacob's story in chapter 49, verse nine, he meets Pharaoh. And this is what he says to Pharaoh. He says, the days of my years have been few and troubling. My life has been a bummer. Why? Well, you reap what you sow. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Lying and deceit, they're a pyramid scheme. It seems like you're doing good right now, but you're really going bankrupt the whole time. And that's what happens to Jacob, sadly. And yet we'll find throughout this all, God never gives up on him. That's the big story, okay? So Rebecca, she's, you know, horsepower in this thing. She has to do the unthinkable. She goes, I lost Esau. Why'd she lose Esau? Because she sided with Jacob and Esau knows that. She's like, I don't want to lose Jacob as well. So she does the things that she could never imagine she would ever do. She sends her beloved son to her brother and she knows her brother. It's Uncle Rico. Bad news, dude. Oh, oh great. Yeah, but she's in a rock and a hard place. It's either there or he's dead. So I guess I'm sending him away and she'll never see him again. The big message of chapter 27, really the entire book of Genesis is this. You don't run your family like the book of Genesis. You don't do that. And there's always these kind of ideas that you like go to the Bible and grab like a character and be like, hey, look how great this character is, right? Hey, let's study the life of Abraham, how great he was. And he was a great man. But you always got to do this in the life of anyone in the Bible. You got to, okay, he's great here, but don't lie about your wife to Pharaoh and don't take Hagar and, and don't, you right? David, hey, let's look at David. David, great leader. But don't do the adultery, murder, lying thing though, that, that thing over there, right? There's always that. You're like, except for here, there's always the exception because there's one hero in the Bible and that's it. And the Bible is driving toward the one hero. And it sets up people in real human situations, dusty, dirty, flawed people, so that our hope is placed in one person, Jesus. We don't follow Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. That's who we follow. And so tonight, we could take communion. Where once again, we're reminded There's one hero and it's Jesus and we serve Jesus and our desire is to be conformed into his image. And yes, we can learn both good and bad from the heroes and the zeros of the Bible, 
but we keep coming back to Jesus. That's who we're being conformed to. So Father, we thank you for another brilliant example of the earthy realness of the book of Genesis. That you did not gloss over the men and women that you used, the Isaacs and the Rebekahs. That you did not sanitize their lives, but you showed the kind of people that you are willing to use. And that gives so much hope to me because I can be so much like Isaac. I can be so much like Esau. I can be so much like Jacob. And yet you still say, you'll use me. So I pray even tonight, Lord, for those that may have come in here disheartened by their Isaac-ness or their Jacob-ness or their Rebecca-ness or their Esau-ness, I pray that they would firmly fix their eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith, knowing it's you that perfect us, that transform us, that change us, and that you are willing to put up with us because you've been tempted in the same ways and so you are a faithful, merciful high priest to us. And so may we eat and drink of that great story tonight, I pray. We pray this in your name, amen.